This is 50 miles per hour. Pop quiz, hot shot. There's a bomb on a bus. You're deeply nuts, you know that. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is on. Stay on or get off. If it drops below 50, stay on or get off. It blows up. Oh darn. What do you do? You have a hair trigger aimed at your head. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? I'm your host, Chris Tapley, and you're listening to an oral history of director Jan de Bont's 1994 summer blockbuster, Speed. Straight from the people who made it happen. Now, don't forget to fasten your seatbelts. Let's hit the road. We are officially 22 episodes deep into this whirlwind project, which means we're fast approaching the midpoint of 50 miles per hour. You know, a midpoint in a screenplay tends to mark a major plot point in the story, and boy do we have one of those today. Think back and remember the trailer for Speed, if you can. Remember the TV spots. Hell, remember the poster. Remember what they were selling you. Chances are you just pictured a city bus flying over a gap in a freeway. That image alone sold hundreds of thousands of tickets in the summer of 1994. The bus jump sequence is a harrowing stunt that happens a little beyond the midpoint in speed. The build starts 62 minutes into the film, in fact. But it certainly feels like the pivot point in a story that does not give you a minute to breathe. After all, a single frame before Norwood gets that radio call about the oncoming chasm, Jack Traven is comforting Annie in the wake of Helen's death. You'll recall Fox production president Tom Jacobson had a pretty good memory of how this idea ended up on the table. It was in a meeting where director Jan de Bont was making the case for himself to direct the film. Let's hear that one more time. So Jan comes into the meeting, incredibly prepared. And in the meeting, so here's, here's the vibe of this movie. Here's what it should feel like. Here's what it's looked like. And here you got a pro- one problem with the script. We went, oh, oh yeah. I mean, he's a cameraman. He said, you know, the movie goes like this, goes like this. And you're missing like an end of the second act crescendo. You're missing like some fantastic moment where just everything the odds are against everybody Jorge and I are going like yeah and he pitched in the room the unfinished freeway bus jump it wasn't in the script that came from that director's meeting and we went oh my god here is uncredited screenwriter Joss Whedon on the importance of the scene in the broader scope of the movie I think someone was talking about that they were going to cut the jump and his argument for the jump was this makes them a family. This is the moment when they're all going to die together and they don't. And the dynamic on the bus is completely different after that. So this is our focus today. One of the great action movie set pieces of the 90s, if not, dare I say, all time. After surviving a barrage of rush hour collisions, spine-tingling hairpin turns, a tragic onboard explosion, and a damn baby carriage full of cans, Jack Traven and the passengers of Bus 2525 are confronted with the reality that the 105 freeway isn't finished. We covered this in the locations episode, but they did such a great job of using the truth of the evolving Los Angeles landscape in this movie. They even call out the Bravo Tango runway at LAX by name when we get to that bit but let's not get ahead of ourselves. This is just an awesome sequence, and we're going to go deep into it today. So let's just get a bunch of voices flying around here to start. 
Here's Bill Young, coordinator of the Precision Driver Cars. Everybody showed up for the jump. And the reason being is everybody knew there would never be another jump. That was the end of that. I never saw another jump because everything is CG now. Production designer Jackson Degovia. I watched the bus jump uh, from the side as close as I could get to see it because I had no idea, like everybody else, of what was going to happen. Set decorator KC Fox. I was there, which was kind of odd because I'm usually not around set all that much, you know, trying to stay one step ahead of the shooting company. It was very exciting, you know, nothing like a great stunt. But those days were fraught, laying out the cones to go into the jump zone, you know, as we're going towards the jump zone thing, like very tense uh, time on set. Actor Richard Lineback. I had no idea. Uh, I'd shot a lot of TV at that point. I'd watched a lot of things blow up with gasoline and naphtha and everything else, making huge balls of fire as uh, TV back then was. Watching cars uh, go up on their side and uh, stunts were a huge part of, uh, there was no CGI back then. So stunts were everything uh, and, you know, still are. But if the stunt man or the stunt driver didn't do it, it didn't get done. So uh, I was used to a lot of stuff like that, but watching them prepare and it's not like you can take a lot of runs with a, I don't know how many ton bus, but no matter how much you prepare, there's no telling how it's actually going to work out. And so we were all there with, I don't know how many uh, cameras rolling at the same time. Unit production manager Ian Bryce here talking about the man who drove the bus for this sequence, legendary stuntman Joffrey Brown. He was in a suspension harness, I think they called it, driving the bus from the middle, right? So like the 10th row or 12th row back, whatever it was, so that you couldn't see him. And then we had dummies of, you know, Sandy and Cammy up in the front. And, you know, it was an old bus and it took a mile run up to get to the speed that we needed to uh, hit that ramp. And he, he didn't have a lot of space on either side. I mean, th- those are nerve wracking stunts, very risky, very complicated. And listen, you take as much of the risk out as uh, as you can with all the professionals that are there. But nonetheless, you know, while you're getting ready to shoot a scene like that, I think everybody's nerves are uh, jingling a little bit, you know. Second assistant director, Maggie Murphy. That was a day to remember. There were a couple of days to remember where there were tricky stunts going on. And, and me being the nervous Nelly, that was incredibly nerve-wracking. I mean, he was in a cage that was built for him. He had a helmet on. We had a helicopter on standby to air back him out if anything happened. Standing by on the freeway. Like, there were guys ready with the jaws of life and all that stuff. You know, in case the bus jumped and then rolled or whatever, we had a helicopter standing by on the freeway. That's scary shit. Actor Carlos Carrasco. I do remember it was a very, very exciting day. Everybody was on edge because they just didn't know how it was going to go. I remember, too, it took forever. That was delay and delay. No, we're not ready yet. We're not ready yet. And they finally decided it was ready. And we all stood around at a safe distance and out of camera range to see what the heck was going to happen. And when that stunt bus did that, it was done. 
because when it landed, it landed on the engine and just cracked the oil pan and everything like that. And it's like, well, I hope you got it because that's it. Put a pin in that notion for now. Here's First Assistant Director David Sardi. It was kind of stressful, as all of those big events are, and time-consuming just to get right. And it wasn't our entire day at all. You know, we allowed probably three or four hours for it. We were further down the freeway shooting other work, and they were setting it up and lining it up and making sure the ramp was set. And all that stuff really did take all day. But as a company, we weren't there all day. And as I recall, it was later in the day. And so, you know, it was one of those things where you know it's coming. But for me, it was less scary because it was a totally controlled situation. The jump for me as the AD was pretty easy because nobody else was involved. We weren't staging any elements around it. There was just the jump itself. Unit publicist Bob Hoffman. It was like an army that was out there that day of camera people. We were so busy for the couple of days leading up to this time in terms of the planning, because we're documenting all those crew meetings. And then the morning of where they got out onto the freeway and they had a strategy meeting with everybody there. And they had this scale model and they were showing all the camera positions. And there was so much to get done. And we had the EPK crew I think they had a third camera on the EPK, all fixed positions in proximity to the six or seven cameras that were, you know, Jan was operating a camera, Andre was operating a camera, the camera assistants were all operating cameras. Anybody who was like a second camera assistant who wasn't needed there immediately, he had a Nikon, he had one of Richard's Nikons and a tripod. I mean, you never saw coverage like this. We get out there and then finally, you know, we're all like figuring out where we're going to be. And Richard and I kept, you know, mindful of where the production cameras were and the way that they were viewing the scene and covering the scene. And there were all these barriers that were set up, like those heavy cement freeway barriers. So we found spots that were, really good for still coverage. And then about an hour before we were going to shoot, I kind of was like, okay, then I'm going to shoot from here. And, and, you know, and, and just with the camera, just sitting on top of the cement, you know, block. And then I look around and I think to myself, wait a minute, what happens if this stunt goes awry and you know, something happens? Like a fucking bus is going to be going 60 miles an hour and it's going to hit this kicker and it's going to land. And all of a sudden, what happens if the driver doesn't have control of the bus anymore? I look back at that and I thought, Richard and I were fucking crazy. Bob is talking about still photographer Richard Foreman. Let's hear from him. I put Bob next to a camera, two cameras on a tripod. I said, hold this button down because the cameras were connected because in the old days we shot black and white in color. And so I put matching lenses on both cameras on a flat bracket on top of the tripod. Uh, cameras were connected to a, a single uh, shutter button, um, and it was a horizontal shot. And his shot was actually published uh, front page or cover page of, I think, a sound magazine. Because I think Speed won an Academy Award for sound or something. And so he got the shot of the bus flying 
in just a, a 90 degree perspective of the bus. Assistant stunt coordinator Brian Smurs. I hadn't been around that kind of stuff as much. So to be honest, I was a little bit like, didn't know what to expect as much from it. I just hadn't done that kind of big jumps like that at all. So I was just more, a little bit more of an observer at that point. And it was uh, when Joffrey definitely did not let off the gas. <laughs> you, know, you could see him coming, he's like stepping on it all the way through. So uh, yeah, I thought it was uh, pretty iconic for that time in my career. And Brian's boss, stunt coordinator Gary Himes. Nobody had ever jumped about that far. I've done hundreds of jumps on everything from our Catholic McCormick and A-Team and to, uh, oh God, on and on and on, um, Airwolf and Heart to Heart fans, yeah, whatever, all those old shows. And I had a pretty good idea, uh, but we all felt that the bus is just going to nose in, just given the length. And if you really look at the, the physics of it and the geometry of it, to get it that airborne, because you have such a gap between the front wheels and the rear wheels leaving the ramp, the back end would get more of a kick, and it would nose in pretty hard. And everybody's boss, director Jan DeBont. We had the bus made um, as light as possible. After finishing all the shots of, of the people in the bus going in protection mode, um, they were, were replaced with doubles. And we had a stunt drive, of course. Then. So then we had to build a really long ramp that would basically make the bus go sailing. Because if a ramp is straight, the bus will just fall down. So to be able to make it do a fly, you have to build it in a way so it goes upward. And those buses are, don't have powerful engines, so we have to put a bigger engine in. But then still, it's like, it's a bus, you know? So to get from 50 to 60 or whatever, you have to really uh, use a long, long track. So they had to build a really long track the section of road that goes up, 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 up. And at the very last point where you do it, and there's a little bit of a tiny ramp that lifts the front wheels up so that as it goes up, it floats. For some perspective with Joffrey Brown back at the start of the jump, I want to bring in a new voice here. And I'm really just showing off how comprehensive I'm trying to be with my interviews. This is Seth Edelstein, and today Seth is the Emmy-nominated producer and unit production manager of series like... Murder in the First, Better Call Saul, Hacks, and For All Mankind. He also had a lengthy first and second assistant director career before that. On speed, Seth was as far down the totem pole as it gets. He was the DGA trainee on the film. Here's what he recalls of this day. The thing that struck me was I was, I was at the start mark for the bus, and I was the only production person there with that stuntman, and... I remember standing in the doorway of the bus while he was sitting in the driver's seat, looking at him getting ready, knowing that there was a ramp all the way down the road that he was about to send the bus over. And he took a picture of his family out of his pocket and put it on the on a little band that was up on the sun visor. And I remember him kissing his hand and putting his fingers to the picture and looking at it for a moment before he said he was completely ready. And that was a moment that told me that he was scared too. All right, back to Gary Himes and everyone back at the ramp. Jan is setting cameras. And, you know, and as a second year director and having shot my fair amount of action, I'm going, Jan, you know, I, 
not so sure. Like some of the camera positions, I don't think it's ideally suited to where I anticipate the bus to land. And he's like, don't you talk to me about camera positions. Why aren't we ready? Why aren't we? And he just goes off on me big time, right? So I just turned to him. I said, just stay action. We're ready. And I walked away. So we started the bus, you know, like miles away practically and did everything we could to get maximum speed out of it. So anyhow, the, the, it hit the ramp and it set the front end considerably higher than any of us would ever have imagined that it would go. And so it really came in rear wheels first, which made for a sensational shot. And I think it's been talked about time and time again. I've done numerous interviews and they even did a Mythbusters episode on it, right? So we all know that it was over the top. I'm the first one to say in our wildest dreams, none of us saw it coming in with the nose. We wanted nose high, but not at that severe of an angle. Before we get too deep into the weeds on that, I figure I could have a couple different people explain the logistics and physics that went into planning this. But special effects coordinator John Frazier is probably the most detailed about it, so let's hear from him. That's the only shot that John really, he wanted to auger in more. And I was going for the realism. And he didn't, he didn't want to have that. What you do is, on these, these jumps like that, is you have your initial ramp, right? And it was set at, I don't know how many degrees. But at the front of the ramp, on the top of it, about the last eight feet, you put, we call it a kicker ramp. And whatever is coming off of that thing, it's like um, Newton's first law. If it's in motion, it stays in motion. It doesn't change. So if you're arcing up, it's going to stay in that arc all the way down. So if you want it to fly level, you got to trick the bus. So what you do is you put a kicker ramp on, and it's another lower short ramp, and then you set it up on an angle away from the ramp. It's on the ramp, but it's at the tail end of the ramp that the bus is going to go off. Okay, you take that plate, and you just raise it up, in this case, it was about a foot, okay? Now, what you do is, and it was easier because it was a bus, because it was so long. When the bus goes up, the front wheels hit the kicker ramp. Now, that causes the bus to go up at a different trajectory, because now it's off the ramp, it's on the kicker ramp, and it goes up. So now you're in the Newton's Law, right? What you do then, as soon as those front wheels leave the kicker ramp, you drop the ramp on top of the other ramp. So the back wheels now are on on the ramp, but on the same plane that it was on. The front wheels are up in the air. That causes it to glide. To get a good example, when we did the rookie with Clint Eastwood, when that car comes out of that building, it's perfectly level. And that's because of the kicker ramp. If you don't do that, it does exactly what Newton said it's going to do. It's going to come off that ramp, and it's just going to stay in that arc, and it's going to auger in. Now, I probably put a little bit too much lift on the kicker ramp, but at the end of the day, you know, it just looks like a bus flying through the air, right? You don't want it to be like Dukes of Hazard. You know, when that car goes in the air and it's coming down, that car is done, and the people in it are done. And then they shake the car, and then the two boys are fine, right? You see that every Wednesday night on TV, okay? Well, we don't want that. You're going to know that the bus stopped right there if it does that. 
But Jan, after the shot, he said, oh, man, he said, I wanted it to auger in. That was the only real shot that he kind of like, he just wanted something a little different. So hopefully all of that made sense, but to distill it, you've got a long ramp, then you've got a smaller ramp at the end of it. As the bus goes up the ramp, it then goes up the second ramp. You then drop the second ramp so that the back wheels don't hit it and go up in the same trajectory as the front wheels are now moving in. That should make the bus soar and then crash sort of head-on into the pavement. Jan wanted that because he wanted it to look like the bus was sort of nosediving and nearly missing on the other side. What we ended up with was sort of the opposite of that, where the bus lands like a 747 airplane with the back wheels touching down first. And the near miss of it all is in seeing those back wheels just barely finding purchase on the other side of the gap. Again, Jan didn't want that. I remember after the stunt, the bus landed, and we're looking through the Nikon, you know, just with the motor drive, just shooting away. And then the bus lands, it gets into control, it comes to a stop, and all the stunt guys and the medics and everybody, they run over to the bus, and the guy who was the stuntman, he, he's walking off the bus, and his mouth is just covered in blood. He bit his tongue. Stunt driver Gil Combs. Yeah, he damn near bit it off, based on what I saw after he got out. I still don't know how he did that. Um, I think somehow or another, I don't know if he spit his mouthpiece out, because I know he had a mouthpiece. Here's, here's why I know. I put him in the bus. I put him in. I strapped him in. I gave him his mouthpiece before I, I get, got out. Because they, they rolled camera, I handed him his mouthpiece. That's the last thing I gave him. And I ran out of the bus. He closed the door, and then they hollered action, and down the road he went towards the ramp. So I know he had his mouthpiece. I handed it to him. I really not a, <laughs> never got a good explanation from him uh, after the fact. But, yeah, some, I'm telling you, man, it was, it was one of the grossest things i ever seen after he Got out and he's just saying, I gotta do it. I almost built my tongue out. He sticks sticks his tongue out and I about threw up. Like, oh shit. Oh man. Don't don't show me that again. After that visual, here's actor Joe Morton to lighten the mood a bit. Pardon my laughter, but he totally caught me off guard here. And you heard what he said when he called his wife? He's bitten down on his tongue, uh, and he says that he has to call his wife because she gets nervous whenever he does these kinds of things, and he has to call her to let her know that he's okay. So he gets on the phone, and he says to her, he says, sweetheart, um, I'm fine, but I can't lick your pussy tonight because I, I, I bit my tongue. And with that, let's talk about this legend, because I need to finally get around to Joffrey Brown. We've been sort of talking around him for a couple of episodes now. He doubled Hawthorne James when they were testing his transfer spot. He doubled Glenn Plummer in the Jaguar sequence, driving the car when Brian Smurz did the more harrowing of the jumps over to the bus, and then he also plowed into the water barrels at the end of that sequence. And here he is again, driving the bus up this ramp, soaring through the air, and then crashing it back to the ground. You'd love to talk to a guy like that, but Joffrey died in 2014 after an amazing life and career. Joffrey was actually a professional baseball player in the 1960s. He was drafted by three major league teams, first by the Pittsburgh Pirates in 1965, then by the Boston Red Sox in 1966. He ultimately signed with the Chicago Cubs and spent several years in the minor leagues, making just one major league appearance. He had only pursued baseball because of his father's love of the sport, so with a torn rotator cuff and an itch to do something else, 
He was soon enough lured to Hollywood by his brother Calvin, another legendary stuntman. Journalist Matt Monaghan wrote a pretty great profile of Joffrey at MLB.com back in April, and I'd suggest you seek that out for more, but Joffrey, like his brother, was a pioneering professional in this industry for men and women of color. He performed stunts in films like Live and Let Die, Smokey and the Bandit, Commando, Lethal Weapon, Predator, Die Hard, Hard Target, The Relic, and Oblivion. Just to, you know, name a few. And by the way, he also coordinated stunts on films like Scarface, Action Jackson, House Party 3, and one of his favorite movies, according to his widow, The Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings. Oh, and here's a fun fact. You remember the opening scene of Jurassic Park where the loading dock guy on the top of the raptor pin gets killed? That's Joffrey Brown. What's even cooler is they just straight up used his name for the character. Go back and listen to Muldoon barking orders. Well off! Loading team, step away! Again, the guy was a legend. I just want to really give him his due here because I can't talk to him. But we can hear from him. This next clip is from the behind-the-scenes material that was filmed that day by Bob Hoffman's EPK crew. It was prominently featured in the HBO First Look Making of mini-doc that I've discussed here before. Remember, Joffrey had just bitten the shit out of his tongue here, and they're playing score over this interview, but hopefully you can make it out as he describes his experience. Let's see, the tiles blew, the doors came off, it blew the oil pan, oil went everywhere. Uh, a lot of dummies flew around inside the bus. The how you can't explain, you know, it's just a natural feeling that everything goes completely silent when you're in there. All you hear is like a, you know, and it's kind of really weird. Everything goes into slow motion almost. Back to stunt coordinator Gary Himes. So anyhow, Mark Gordon comes running over, uh, Peter Chernin, um, basically everybody's, oh, Gary, that was sensational, that's great. And I just remember this guy comes up and he's pushing like and it's done and he gets in my face and just goes off on me just you know you ruined my shot and anyhow so i just kind of said you know Jan, i said i i told you where it was going to land yes it went higher than any of us thought it would but in all of our discussions we protected it camera wise and andre we would talk about it and he's like yeah i'm gonna throw a wider one back here and i'll have you know these two panning angles and we'll so we knew we had it covered, right? And so uh, I had just pretty much at that point, I, I, I had had it. So I said, look, yeah, and I said, that's essentially, it's not working out for me either. And uh, I, I think we should just part way. So I start walking back to my motorhome and Mark Gordon comes up and he's like, oh, Gary, don't, you know, you can't leave. Yeah, you know, you're just having a moment. And I'm like, well, I don't work like that. And so that's at the chase about 20 minutes later. Jan knocks on the door of my motorhome and we sat down and talked. And basically from that moment on, we had a great relationship. Literally the very next day we're setting a shot and Jan's like, Gary, come here, tell me, where would you put the cameras for this? It changed so 180. And I think that, I don't know, maybe the fact I stood up to him, I earned some respect. I don't know. Now we're about to go deeper. 
This next section is going to detail the most stubborn wrinkle that I've been trying to iron out along the way, and I just haven't been able to fully understand it. So I might as well be as unabridged in presenting all sides as I can. Here is Jan de Bont. Unfortunately, we only had one chance to do it. But of course, the one time we had planned to shoot it, everything set, all the cameras were set, and the, the, the stunt double, the driver, he went so fast that the bus went over the cameras, crashed the cameras, not planned, but in reality, it would never have worked for the sequence. The idea was to really get him in the, in the air, start landing, and then have him land in front of the camera. So it goes out of frame, landing, and that didn't really work because it went so fast that all the cameras missed it. And that was a disaster. Of course, we not only destroyed multiple cameras and the bus completely. And so I said, oh my God, they only gave us one opportunity. So um, what we did with Ian Bryce, an amazing line producer, a fantastic uh, supportive person, is tell the studio we didn't film it. <laughs> we did some testing this day and, and that we're probably going to do it the next weekend or so. So they never saw the dailies. It was never sent to the studio. And they believed this, which was great, you know, because otherwise we would have never gotten a chance. And we would never have gotten it right. And then the next time they did it, you know, another weekend, because they, they had to build a new bus and all the same stuff again. And uh, this time the bus driver was uh, less afraid and uh, he did a perfect job. Let me state that again very clearly. According to Jan, the studio gave him one chance to shoot this stunt. He didn't get what he wanted because the bus landed on a number of cameras. So he told the studio they didn't shoot it, that they actually just ran some tests. And then they did it again on another date, unbeknownst to the suits at Fox. Jan has told this story before, and it's become a small part of the aura around this movie, that they did something this massive without studio approval or knowledge. And you can see this displeasure with the shot in the reams of behind-the-scenes material the publicity unit shot that day. Jan was visibly upset. But it was more about the trajectory of the bus, which went sort of straight up and didn't go up and down and auger in quite like he wanted it to. I know that to make things believable, there's a lot of things the audience will accept, but there's certain things you do not accept. And if a bus makes, for them, an unbelievable move like that they think is not real, they will not accept it. It will be less effectful. So to be able to, to, to really make them believe it exactly like it's supposed to happen and execute it in the same way, that is really important to get it all right. And anything that distracts is really, really bad. And I know that just from having worked on so many other movies, when people just, oh, it's good enough, it's good, and it's actually not good enough. And then, oh, shit, we should have done it one more time. So those days, we would then send to the studio, and then they were extremely happy, of course. They couldn't believe that we did it in one take. <laughs> yeah, now we did it actually in a little sneaky way, but directors and line producers do that all the time because... You know, they don't know what's going on in the set, and it's ultimately, they would have never forgiven me if they wouldn't have jumped, you know. In those days, digital effects were not even close to being able to copy that, so it had to be real. Naturally, I've asked everybody about this. Not one person has fully confirmed this second jump. 
And I wanted to be clear, because there was a second jump filmed, but not this full stunt with the huge run-up and everything. It was a much smaller jump meant to capture the landing of the bus from behind. Everyone does remember that. No one remembers doing the whole massive stunt again. Here's unit production manager Ian Bryce. No, there were several pieces of it. So there was the big jump, which was the one-mile run-up, and it hit a ramp that was, you know, however many feet long and ended at like six, seven feet, you know, off the launch end. That was once. That was a one-time deal, right? It's far too dangerous uh, to do it twice. And, and by the way, you know, the bus had to be prepared and the suspension and all of that. So that that's a one-shot deal. Secondarily, we did a, like a, a separate landing piece, that's very specific. Those are tighter lenses, and you know you just get a little bit of the bounce. But yeah, the big jump was one time. Production designer Jackson Degovia. They only did it once, and the bus went further than they thought it would. So it destroyed one camera, and it destroyed that film, and you never see that. Now, if there is uh, something that happened and they didn't jump or didn't make it or something, it's news to me because I was standing there when it happened. And as far as I know, there was only one jump. Producer Mark Gordon. We never shot it again. And the reason I know we didn't shoot it again was because in the film, it goes like this. That was the kicker ramp. The flap didn't go down. I don't know what he's talking about. He's referring to the bus going straight up in the air as opposed to straight out. Mark also told me, by the way, that Jan was distressed about the light fading and that he even declared at one point that he would not shoot the sequence that day. I said, well, if you don't shoot it today, you may not ever fucking shoot it. We're shooting it, Jan, so fucking get going. We're we're shooting. Jan wasn't happy with the light because by the time we got ready to shoot it, the light was flat and there were shadows on the freeway. So he was really pissed off. So I said, we got to shoot it. If it doesn't work, that's another conversation. And this is might might have been what he remembers, but we never shot it again. John Frazier, you got anything on this? I've heard that before that, oh yeah, the stunt guy screwed up or something and then we had to do it again. But no, it was a one taker. If we did it twice, I would have dropped the kicker ramp and John would have got what he wanted. Because I remember when Joffrey got out of the bus, he said, yeah, I'm glad we're only doing that once. I think he did take out a camera, but we weren't going to do it again. I'm sure there was a lot of lying to the studio about stuff, because just like with that, you got one shot at it. You know, that's a big deal. I don't know what that movie costs, but let's just say that around figure per day, it's about $500,000 a day. On the really big features, it could be a million dollars a day by now. I don't know. But 500000 was a good number. So, you know, when you got to do something again, you just blew $500,000. You know, it's hard to hide that. But you have to think about that when you're setting up stuff and when you're testing. It's like, if this doesn't go right, we could cost them a half a million dollars. So we've always kind of prided ourselves on if it was supposed to be in one, they got it in one. But I, I just don't. We, we only put one cage and one bus. There were other shots in the movie where we launched cars and did other stuff where absolutely cars landed on. So I think there may be some confusion there. I mean, look, these are folks who would know, right? The UPM, the production designer, the producer, the special effects coordinator, the stunt coordinator. Maybe Jan is misremembering? Maybe he's juicing the story up a bit to build the mythology. 
Well, I don't want to countermand my old friend, but uh, yeah, that that uh, uh, that doesn't seem that doesn't seem right. I mean, listen, there was a separate occasion where we did a stunt and it didn't work, and I did say to the studio that um, we we needed to have another crack at it because it just didn't work and the bus landed. Uh, or it wasn't a bus, it was a car. You remember when, you know, she's, uh, Sandy's doing the stay on or get off, stay on or get off, right? You're doing all that. And then the bus pushes a car, broken down car that was kind of stuck behind a trailer, like a car carrier. And that car got pushed and went up over the top of the car carrier and came off the other side. Well, wh- where it landed was not quite, you know, and there was nobody in it, obviously, it was just a mechanical stunt. But, um, you know, that car landed on the cameras and did some damage to the cameras. And so, and in that, we certainly did not get exactly the angles that Jan was referring to, and that did get done again. But that was a less significant stunt. But, yeah, the other one was a one-shot deal. And he he's right, he didn't exactly get it the way that he wanted to. He He was, you know... He was a little upset. Um, you know, there were some a couple of aspects, how high the bus went, and then the camera operators, you know, which were all, that was all live action back then, right? There's no remote heads or drones or anything that you could stick out there in the danger zone. These, these were all human beings on the receiving end of that bus when it was coming in uh, on the landing. And I think my memory is that there was somebody, we always put a safety person or two safety people on those cameras in certain situations like that. And I think they might have pulled the camera operator uh, a little early. And so obviously that shot got a bit um, wonky. Because listen, when you see a bus coming at you, you know, that's just been going 50 miles an hour, you have split seconds to make your choices about whether you've got to safety the crew. To be exact, Jan's correct in the sense that, yeah, I mean, we had talked about the jump, and this is always kind of where we'd go with it. I said, but if I can give you more, would you take it? And he said, yeah. He goes, of course, but he goes, just know that as long as I get 60 feet. So when I saw where he was putting the cameras, I think that's what kind of started the heat of the moment. And I said, Jan, you know, every based on you know everything we've projected, these cameras are going to miss the shot. And that's where he goes, don't tell me where to put my fucking cameras. Why aren't we ready? You know, I so get it from Jan's perspective. He's directing his first film. It's a big deal. You know, he just wants everything to be perfect, as we all do. Action is what I do, is what the effects guys do. This is our job, right? So I think the picture we have in our heads of what the outcome is going to be was considerably different than I think what Jan ultimately saw it as being. You can pre storyboard, you can do whatever you want. But, you know, at the end of the day, we all have a preconceived notion in our heads that we visualize from. And I think that visualization Jan had was always different. And I feel bad because my job is to give the director always what he wants. That's what I work for. So hindsight being what it is, of course, it made the shot because had the bus just landed flat or nosed in or whatever, it just wouldn't have had that pop, but it was so sensational that, you know, it wasn't intentional. I did want it to land uh, wheels high, but like I said, none of us had a clue that it would pop that much and stay there. I know this is starting to sound a little repetitive, but I'm just trying to paint a complete picture of everyone's memory here. And so I had to go back to Jan and make sure he wasn't misremembering, or like Ian and Gary suggest here, 
conflating two memories of two different stunts. Well, Jan told me the whole story again, and it's pretty vivid. And these interviews were two years apart. It was another bus that was going to be destroyed, and we had reached kind of a limit already, how many buses were destroyed at the time. And because it, once you crash a bus, I mean, it's in the movie still rolls, but in reality, it would be destroyed. And it had to be totally rigged for that jump. So we got one chance. So, and the problem was, of course, and I told you that, is that one chance we got, we totally screwed it up because the front driver freaked out, slowed down, didn't make the jump, didn't reach far enough, and therefore landed all the cameras. And um, we didn't get shots, real simple. And then, so that was the question, how do we tell the studio? And then I made up a story that um, we did a fantastic test run and I think it's all going to work. We had some uh, issues with, you know, logistics, how to really get the right speed. I made up a whole story that they fell for. And, but uh, I said, tomorrow we're going to do the real thing, which we really were not ready for at all, of course. But that was the only, t- only chance we had. And so we had to quickly make another bus ready to do the same drop, made it uh, everything in the chassis lighter, so that the speed could stay high up and, and that it really would land on its wheels. And also, initially, we wanted to take a different stunt driver down because the other guy almost bit his tongue off and because he got suddenly scared. And he still wanted to do it. I said, I don't want to risk it again. We never get another opportunity to shoot this scene. And I said, no, I think he learned his lesson. And actually, he did learn his lesson. He really did get the, the bus to speed and actually almost went faster than was needed. So, and then I could say the next morning, yeah, we did the first day, first day was perfect. So I basically got a free day, but I could not schedule it officially, you know, because it's on our schedule, it was only like one day, which was like, I think on a Friday afternoon or so. And so we did it, we felt, and then I did it again by filming first another scene. So it looked like the day was really full, and so the studio believed that it was all okay and great. And when they saw it, they loved it, not knowing that we totally screwed up the first time. You'll note that this time he said Joffrey slowed down. And yet earlier he said he went too fast. It's a shame I can't talk to Joffrey about all of this. Then again, he also strikes me as a guy who wouldn't have been scared, as Jan said, given the stuff he did throughout his career. But the bottom line is there is a chorus of people who insist they didn't shoot this thing twice. I mentioned all of this to Jan, and he doubled down. Tom Fraser was the one who took the bus apart and put those extra springs in there, for God's sake. Maybe what happens is maybe they started to believe that the first take the day before was like a test take or so, because that's what I kept telling everyone. And maybe that's what they're thinking. So what? Is this Jan and Joffrey out there all by themselves? No producer? No stunt coordinator? No special effects guys? It starts to feel like that's the only way this could have been true. And Jan does say the crew was much smaller on the day of the alleged second jump. We want to be a really small crew. We have only like three or four cameras and stunt people. That was it. There's nobody else was needed, you know, because the extras were not needed. Uh, it was basically just to jump. And therefore, maybe that's why people thinking that it was just one time. There were not that many people there, so maybe you know, that's what, in their mind, they only saw the one. And they didn't know it was totally wrong that they, well, they saw the cameras were screwed up, but also that, therefore, the, um, they didn't know that all the shots were useless. 
No, 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 absolutely. I'm, I, I remember that was the day of, of, of yesterday. And yes, I made sure that he didn't mean the smaller second jump to get the landing. I know it's a full start again. Because this time, the driver, the sun driver, he did better than we expected. And he reached a higher speed at the very end. And I can't believe, I can't believe it over nothing. Because I, I, everybody was, when it happened the first time, was really pissed off. I only ever heard from two people who made me think that maybe, maybe, this was done twice. First, here's still photographer Richard Foreman. And of course, the kicker kicked it up way too much, and they had to redo it, I guess, for the film, or do something you probably know more about than I, because in the film, it didn't look like that. Yeah, Richard, I wish it could be authoritative about this one. Here's first AD David Sardi, who just blurted this out at the end of a discussion about Jan being unhappy with the angles. Now that you're talking about it, we might have actually done it a second time without the kicker. I think that's correct. It would have still needed a kicker. We made the kicker too long and too high. And then it's also how I modified the front suspension. Had there been more give, it would have absorbed the ramp a little more. I made it very rigid, one, to protect Joffrey, and two, so basically it wouldn't bottom out so bad that it would break the front end off hitting that kicker. Whether we hit it from the studio or something like that, yeah, no, I don't think we did that. First of all, I don't think Ian Bryce would have allowed it. The liability is just too great. Might as well get a studio voice to speak to that part, by the way. Here's former Fox exec Jorge Saralegi. They could only do it once because it was hard to do and expensive and a big deal and you're stopping production and we would have known. They could not keep that secret. It's impossible. Okay, look at the shot of the bus going up and you see that angle he's talking about. If you look at the bus, it looks weirdly vertical. And right there, you've heard two different takeaways from the same footage, from Richard and from Jorge. <sighs> Folks, I'm here to tell you I've looked closely at the behind-the-scenes footage of the day everyone was there and the footage you see in the film. I've gone back and forth comparing frames like it's the Zapruder film, and sometimes I think it looks like the same shot, meaning this was only filmed once, because why would Jan put the quote, bad take in there? Other times, it looks like, in the behind-the-scenes footage, the bus might indeed be at a steeper angle than what we see in the movie. But it's obviously weird that so many people don't recall this. John Fraser says he's heard this before, that they did it twice. From who? He also, when we spoke, didn't remember if the bus was totally unusable after the jump or not, and I think clearly that bus was done. So if he's got fuzzy memories of actually being there, watching it go down, maybe he could have missed a second day? Maybe he was in his shop fixing up a bus for a second run without knowing it? That would be odd. Surely Gary would be involved. It's a stunt. It's THE stunt. No memory of it. Ian, the UPM, who organizes the shoot and schedules everything? He would somehow be in the dark? Which is notable, by the way, because you heard Jan at the beginning say he did all of this with Ian's help. And the one guy Jan says definitively was there is Joffrey Brown, who's no longer with us. So, we've got Jan, a still photographer who says what's in the movie doesn't look like what he shot on the day, and a first assistant director, which you would absolutely need to pull this off a second time. There's just enough doubt to drive a man insane. We should get out of this, because it's quicksand, but I guess take all of that and make up your own mind. I'm honestly not sure.
Anyway, moving on, I want you to envision or pull up a picture of the official movie poster for Speed. That is what Richard Foreman is referencing when he speaks here. I was further down the way where no one wanted me to be. <laughs> kind of in harm's way, as they say. And I got the elevated shot of the bus kind of diagonally, which is what you see right here. And what I was told by advertising is that that bus and those flames, because there were so many explosions, that's mostly the flames from the explosion of the bus. Actually, they set off an explosion to reflect in the windows as the bus passengers are looking out the window of the rescue bus. And there's this big explosion. And I photographed, I had two cameras, one aimed at the explosion and one which was just a wall of fire. And that's mostly where they took this wall of fire and the buses coming through. And they said that this photo with the bus and the wall of fire was an amalgam of like six different photos that they put together in Photoshop. My philosophy about what I do is to capture, you know, the iconic images that are put forth. And you never know when you're going to, well, sometimes you do. You, 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 you know when it's going to come and going, this is going to be a great shot. Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you just get that iconic headshot or expression, and that's what's used. And that's what lives on, on people's walls, on websites, on, you know, magazines. And that's what I want to ultimately land on today, despite the confusion and disarray of this otherwise straightforward topic of discussion. The bus jump from speed is a classic movie moment. I say hang it in the Great Hall with Gene Kelly in the lamppost, Cary Grant in the crop duster, Harrison Ford in the idol, King Kong in the Empire State Building. And no, I'm not exaggerating. These images are part of the fabric of our core movie memory. They are, collectively, the American cinema experience. They're immortal and they're indelible. And bus 2525 taking flight over an empty urban expanse lives on right alongside all of them. It was one hell of a set piece. Speaking of which... Next week on 50 Miles Per Hour. I hope you're ready for another list. There's definitely like people on wires. There's hundreds of squibs going off. There's blood packs. There's things exploding. It's a wonderful kind of like symphony of violence in a way that only John Woo could conduct. There's not a lot of action movies that really happened before this movie. I feel like this movie kind of birthed what is now the action genre. Drew Taylor and Charles Hood, hosts of Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, join me to count down the greatest action set pieces of all time. The meticulous nature of Michael Mann, to pull that off, he shot it right up the street here in downtown LA. Just an awesome sequence and the best shootout I've ever seen. I wanted to make sure animation was represented, so I chose the battle for Metroville in The Incredibles. I felt like James Cameron needed to be represented on this list, and to me, in my mind, I kept going back to Terminator 2 and how iconic that sequence is. All of that and more next week, right here on 50 Miles Per Hour. Thanks so much for listening. 50 Miles Per Hour is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Chris Tapley. You can find us on Twitter at 50MPHPod. I'm at Chris Tapley. That's Chris with a K. You can also catch every episode and more at our website, 50mphpodcast.com. If you dug the show, please like and subscribe and do all the things. We'll see you next time.